Hey, welcome to Wednesday Chapel. We're here. We've made it. We're back to our first week of chapel. And I'm excited to see faces. It's so exciting to actually preach with people, to people, and not to camera screens or camera lenses, I should say. Yeah. Okay, I uh, want to let you know how this semester is going to look like for chapel, what today is going to look like, and what might be next week and the coming weeks, who knows, uh, with chapel. Uh, we are uh, going to have chapel, I think it's pretty much every week now, uh, excluding exam week uh, for the remainder of the semester. So Monday, uh, there is no chapel, and then it's the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Uh, we went down from four cohorts to three cohorts. And uh, it's with the meal rotations that you guys are aware of. And then we have some commuters that are kind of slotted in that works for their schedules. So uh, I encourage you, whether there is music or no music, to come to chapel and engage because we believe God really wants to do a work individually and collectively as a community uh, throughout this semester that much of it will uh, be based uh, as we talk through God's word each week in chapel. So uh, glad you're here. We're going to keep masks on the whole time, as you guys are aware, with class and stuff like that. Uh, and then we're going to pray that uh, by next week, uh, maybe Auntie Bonnie will allow us to sing together. If not, we're still going to collectively gather together. We'll pray together. We'll read God's word together. And we will worship God collectively united with one voice. Amen? Amen. Right on. Awesome. So what I want to do to get started this morning, because I really believe not only is it uh, important to hear God's word individually, but collectively, we need to prepare our hearts. We need to prepare our minds, prepare our spirits to receive what God wants to say. And so I want to take a moment and just be silent together. I believe silence is a very good thing, and it can actually unite people. Because there's something about being in a room with another person and not feeling the pressure of having to say anything. And if you don't feel that pressure of having to say anything, there's kind of this bond that takes place. And so I want to sit here, uh, stand myself, sit in silence, uh, and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us. So as we do so, uh, please, in the sense, open up your mind, open up your heart to allow the Spirit to enter into your psyche, into your moment and thinking and heart and everything. And then we'll pray and get into God's Word. Sound good? Wonderful. Holy Spirit, we're so grateful that you have gone before us, that you lead and that you guide. I believe full well inside of me that you are present, you are near, you're with each and every single one of us. And I proclaim that truth this morning, personally, but collectively, Holy Spirit, that you are present and at work. We pray that you would open our minds that our ears would hear the words that you are going to say today as we look into the Holy Scriptures, that we would be reminded of your promises, Father, of your faithfulness, of your everlasting love and commitment to your people. Thank you that you call us your people, your children and your heirs, that we have been adopted into your family. And as we find encouragement in your truths, find encouragement in your words today, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring such change and transformation in us personally, but I also pray collectively as a community. That we would be inspired today, that we would be convicted today. And as you speak, we would listen and it would change us. 
We pray this in your wonderful name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Well, hey, um, we're going to have a great semester. And uh, I believe we're going to have a great semester because we're going to choose to have a great semester. No matter our circumstances, uh, there can still be some wonderful times and some great memory makers. Hey, anybody ever gone sailing before? Yeah? Okay, right on. I went sailing once in grade 7, uh, Lake Okanagan in Kelowna, where I grew up. Had a great time. And uh, I have this little sailboat. Uh, the boat that I was on did not look like this at all. Uh, this is one that my father-in-law gave me as a gift. Uh, uh, he also gave me this book uh, along the same time as a gift back when I was uh, originally ordained as a PAOC pastor here in our district too long ago. And uh, he gave me this, this book and he gave me this little uh, boat model. And I have this sitting on my dresser at home. Uh, to remind me, because there was a, a bit of a meaning behind it and when he gave me this book uh, and this boat. So this book actually was a gift that his father gave to him. So it means a lot to me. Uh, <clears throat> and this book is titled, The Life God Blesses. And in this book, there's this story of this uh, guy by the name of Michael Plant. And he was a world-renowned yachtsman back in the 80s and early 90s and was well-known for his ability, his skill, his experience uh, being a yachtsman. And he did uh, international tours, went around the globe multiple times, both with people and by himself individually. And there was, uh, I think it was his second or third time he was going out. It was in 1992, and he had a new, brand new boat called the Coyote. And he was setting sail off the coast of California, and he was going to be gone for like two or three months. And his family was excited for him, and his like community club was excited for him. And so they had this big like send-off as he got into his boat and sailed the open seas. And so he had, with the Coyote, was like the best of the best in resources, in material for the boat, the wood, the sails, everything was like the best that you could potentially have in that time in the early 90s. Not only did he have the best resources in material, but he had the best resources in technology in regards to his communication, tracking devices, geographical, you know, stuff, trying to find which way you're going. Uh, in regards to weather patterns and understanding what's to come, all this, he had the best of the best. So he was prepped. He was ready to go. He had the bells and whistles, the bees knees. Everything that you saw was like prime. He went off into the waters and unfortunately never returned. About seven or eight days into the trip, all transmission and communication was lost. There wasn't a concern immediately because of how well experienced he was. Uh, but a day turned into overnight, into another day, and into a third, and then there was some concern, and so a search party was sent out. Uh, captains of, like, big ships that were going by were informed. There was pilots flying over with planes, and eventually, after a few days, uh, the coyote was found. Unfortunately, the coyote was down on its side like this. They weren't concerned immediately because they thought, well, there's a safety vest, there's a safety boat, maybe he's out somewhere in his dinghy floating in the open ocean, and so we'll go look but the safety boat and the safety vest were still in the coyote. And all of the communication, transmission, beacons, all that kind of stuff, all still in there, but totally damaged because of the water. And Michael Plant was never found. A really tragic story. And uh, what was unique about the coyote being flipped down onto the side was that uh, if you know anything about sailboats, that they're not meant to actually lay down on the side. They're meant actually to correct themselves 
if a gust of wind or water or a wave pushes it over, it's meant to correct itself. Like those punching bag things, right? Where you hit it and it like comes back at you, right? Do you know the reason why it recorrects itself and comes back at you? Anyone want to guess? Low center of gravity. And the low center of gravity is due to the fact that there is weight at the bottom of the boat, weight at the bottom of those punching bags. And what happened with the coyote, unfortunately, is that the 8,000-pound weight that was on the bottom of the boat had been completely severed off and sunk to the bottom of the ocean. And so the first gust of wind or wave, whatever happened to the coyote, tipped it right over. Nothing Michael Plant could do to recover. And so sailboats, as nice as pretty as they may look like on the top, there's a more need and value rather than just the resources on the top is to have weight below the waterline than above the waterline. Maybe some of you have read a book or have gone through a book in your class called Weight Below the Waterline. So the author of this book here, The Life God Blesses, is Gordon MacDonald, who is the same author of the book Weight Below the Waterline. And uh, he based this book off that story of Michael Plant, Weight Below the Waterline, would have been the leadership principles concept of what he goes through here about this life that God blesses when we have more weight below our waterline. In that internal, soul-level, inner being, as Paul talks about in Ephesians 3. That is, we have more weight below our waterline, in our soul, in the depths and character of who we are. That is where we find the blessings that God has for us. No matter what storm, wave, circumstance, situation happens in our life, we can weather it because of the weight that we have that is solidified inside our internal being. And so uh, this book and this sailboat, what my father-in-law had said to me when he gave it to me is that now as an ordained pastor and your influence is increasing and will continue to increase for those you get to serve and lead, as that increases, so does the need for the depth of your character and spiritual discipline. This is why he gave me this book and this is why he gave me this boat. And so I put it on my dresser to remind me on the regular basis that no matter how much influence I may have on the exterior and outside in positions and opportunities, that there is a need for more weight on the inside of who I am. In the depths and the soul of where God resides, the weight there needs to be far greater than anything anybody else ever sees or notices. And I'm convinced this year, in 2021, right, from what we have gone through in 2020, in 2021, I'm convinced of this truth more than ever before, of the need that we have. In a world where cancel culture is so real, where progressive Christianity is like on the rise right now, that I'm convinced because of the evil that we see raging in social media, both in society and in the church, that we are in need of some real soul care. Yes, self-care is great, but we are in need for some soul care and some spiritual discipline and inner, our inner being being worked on and having more weight below the waterline, both personally and collectively in a community. And so Kim and I were drawn to a passage in Scripture that we felt convicted to work through this semester regarding this topic, this conversation of finding the, this development where we, where we develop our internal, like our inner being, our soul, not on what we desire or our ambitions, but it be founded upon the word and the truths of God. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther. 
this unique season of the Israelite nation where they had just came out of exile from the captivity in Babylon. And some of you may feel like, oh man, 2020 was my exile and now I'm coming out of it. And so together what we're going to do this semester is we're going to work our way through these passages. We're going to work our way through these promises that God has for his people in pretty much non-ideal circumstances that they, that they went through. And as the Israelite community returns back to their home, to the city of David, to Jerusalem, not only to rebuild it, but to reform their community. And God, yes, he, he rebuilt their community physically, but he rebuilt his community spiritually through leaders. And there was a reform that took place in the Israelite nation. So our theme for the semester is reform believing that God is going to take this season in our lives, individually and collectively, to bring about a personal, a corporate reformation here at Summit. And I believe reformation and rebuilding, they do, they require more than just human ambition. God's word must set the agenda. And God's people must pray. If the Israelite nation were ever going to love and obey their Lord, they would need a holistic transformation of their hearts. And this semester may be very similar to the feelings that the Israelite nation had. Things don't look the way that we thought they would. Our expectations are off. I would wish it be this way and not the way that it currently is. We have a chance now to be encouraged by these passages, by the response of this nation, and how to have a holistic transformation of our heart for this semester. So are you with me? Yeah, wonderful. Great. So open up your Bibles to Ezra chapter 7. I want to encourage you this semester, whether we have music or not, to bring your Bibles and to bring a journal. If you use your phone and you use version, fine, that's great. I still encourage you to bring a journal and to write down in that journal, okay? If you use notes, okay, I get it, but there's just something about having a journal, writing it down on paper and pen. And so, you know what? With that being said, we actually have a journal that we want to give away to somebody. So the way that I thought we could do this is we could just have somebody be honest and say, I need a journal. So is there anybody in here that just needs a journal? Anybody? It's okay. Can we give it to Mish? Are we good for that? Can we give it to Mish? All right, let's give it up for Mish. Yeah. Thanks, Mish. And a pen. Yeah. Journal and a pen. And so I encourage you to keep your journals open right through uh, as whatever you feel encouraged by and you want to write down to remember, please do so. Keep your Bibles open uh, into Ezra 7 here as we work our way through this passage together. 7 verses 1 to 10 says this. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sariah, and son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, and the son of Shalom, the son of Zodak, and the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, and the son of Azariah, the son of Merioath, and the son of Zariah, and son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This, verse 6, this Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. 
Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. So I want to give some uh, background here uh, to our story. First is the return of the Israelites back to Jerusalem. The books Ezra and Nehemiah were originally written in like a two-part series of one original work. And Jewish tradition and many scholars today believe that it is Ezra who penned the words, Ezra and Nehemiah, and uh, now throughout the years they have been separated into two separate works, but uh, originally one unified work. The story it's set where Coming out of Babylon, the Israelites are returning now back to Jerusalem. They were in Babylon for around 70 years in exile. And the book of Ezra opens up with this decree from Sirius permitting the Israelites to say, okay, you can go back now to your homeland where you can worship your God. But this didn't all happen at one time. In the actual captivity of the Israelites into Babylon, to Babylon, it was about three different waves in which they were taken captive into, and then three different waves in which the Israelites were released and able to return back to Jerusalem. And so Ezra, the beginning of Ezra, is that first wave of people uh, coming back to the city of David. So three leaders that we see in these books uh, that, that led the waves of the Israelites back to Jerusalem. First was Zerubbabel, chapters 1 to 6 in Ezra, led by Zerubbabel. And then there's Ezra in chapters 7 to 10. And then the book of Nehemiah is led by Nehemiah. And these three leaders, these stories, actually mirror each other in structure and in design on how they were written and how the leaders led and the response of the people. And these stories, they're stories of hope for the Israelite nation. There's stories of hope that God is sovereign in unique times because they were non-ideal times. Jerusalem had been destroyed. It was basically decimated. All protection to the city, gone. Walls had been destroyed. The temple had been destroyed. Homes had been destroyed. And now here comes the Israelite nation back to just basically a mess of what once was this beautiful picture of glory and God's kingdom and the temple and his presence and everything all together, specifically under the reign of Solomon. And so here they are, things not the way they thought it would be, serving Yahweh. And these these stories give hope to the Israelites in which we can be encouraged today that there is still hope in the sovereign God when situations and circumstances don't look the way that we thought they would. Amen? I want to hear some muffled amens out of this, okay? <laughs> so Israel returning fulfills a prophecy out of Jeremiah. And so these, these promises, these prophecies that were spoken of, there are other prophecies that were spoken of, of a coming Messiah, of the 
rebuilding of the temple, of the presence of God being near, of God's like tribes, his nation being united under him, of all nations worshiping Yahweh. So these are these other prophecies that were still yet to come. And because this actually fulfills one out of Jeremiah 25, it gives hope that God has still and will still fulfill his prophecies yet to come. So this return back to Jerusalem is a return of hope for these people and for us to read today. So not only was there a return back to Jerusalem, there was a rebuild in the city of Jerusalem. I had mentioned that with the three leaders, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. So Zerubbabel, he came, and under his leadership and those that were with him in the first wave back, there were some big moments because they rebuilt the altar in which sacrifices took place on. They rebuilt the temple in which the presence of God had resided in for the community of the Israelite nation knew that this is where the presence of God resided. And so as they rebuilt it, there was big expectation that God's presence would be back, that fire would rain down from heaven again, that here, this is where the presence of God, and we would rebuild this glorious kingdom of God and rule over the world is the expectations that they had. And so they rebuilt the temple, and they had this big ceremony, and it didn't happen the way that they thought it would happen. There wasn't this big fire rain coming down from heaven and the presence of God and what they had experienced in generations past wasn't being duplicated again in this season. And so the elder generation cries out, this is nothing like the times of old. Oh, have you heard that before? Have you heard elder generation say, oh, things aren't the way they used to be, eh? Heard that before? But you know what? It's not just the elders who say that. Because I think that's probably been the thing that we've heard the most this school year is, ah, things just aren't the way that they used to be before. And it's hard when expectations have once been met and then now they aren't in that kind of grieving period and loss. And now how do I actually take all this and process it and move forward? This is what these books are about, that we can actually do that, that God's people can actually take our disappointments and our confusions, and we can place them before the Lord and have hope that he is still sovereign and good and that he has a plan. And as we submit to it, his will will be done and it will be pleasing in our life. Any muffled amens out there? Amen. So, surprise, they were arguing, they were bickering. There was the Israelites who had been taken captive, who were now coming back. Uh, the, the young Israelites who would not have gone into captivity, they would have been children, are now grown up. And so there's some Israelites who actually had stayed in Jerusalem, weren't taken into captivity. And so there's like the old Israelite nation and the new Israelite nation. And of course, there's bickering and arguing and all this kind of stuff going on. Beautiful picture to the story at the beginning of Ezra with um, hope and God's plan and reformation and all this stuff. And that's Zerubbabel's story. And then now comes in Ezra in chapter 7. Also, what's interesting is when Ezra comes in in chapter 7, the difference in timelines between Zerubbabel and Ezra is 60 years. So yes, you may flip one page, but essentially you've flipped 60 years in time. And so this is now the second wave that comes in through Ezra's leadership. And Ezra, in the scripture that we read this morning, uh, he basically states his credentials. 
right? He lists his fathers, those who have gone before him to really and essentially like give himself credibility to his readers that who he is is somebody in which that they can trust, that they can listen to. His genealogy validates that he meets the criteria needed to be a priest. And then he gives this really cool resume. Like, you know how on your resume, you always got to put the thing that you're best at or the few things that you excel at, and you almost feel guilty by putting it down because you want to say humble, but yet not, you have to put yourself out there to make sure people know who you are and your, your capacity, your capabilities. Well, this is what he does. He puts down that he is a teacher, that he is well-versed, that he's skilled in the law of Moses. And I love in this section where he says a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. He's like, you know, you know Yahweh? You know the great I am? Yeah, that one. His law. That's the one that I am well-versed in, that I am skilled in, and I know my way through this law, okay? This is what I have. This is who I am. And he puts it down on his resume for people to say, okay, interesting. This is who he is. And he validates his credibility. And so he leads this second wave back into Jerusalem. But not to rebuild something physically like Zerubbabel did and Nehemiah will, but to rebuild the community of Israel. To rebuild the spiritual and a social renewal in the community of the Israelites. This is Ezra. Nehemiah, he, in the book of Nehemiah, comes and leads the next one where they are there to rebuild the walls. And we're going to go through Nehemiah in the coming weeks. And we're going to talk about promises that uh, is made in these scripture passages that still today we can hold uh, dearly that God will be faithful not only to his promises, but faithful to his covenant people. And the book raises, Nehemiah raises hope in those promises of that there is a future Messiah that we can trust in, that God's presence will be near, that God's kingdom will reign, that there will be united nations singing the name of Yahweh together. And so that's what we get to look through in the next coming weeks. But what I want to specifically today for the rest of our time, I want to talk about Ezra and his not just returning to Jerusalem, not just rebuilding the community of Israel, but reforming the hearts of the Israelite nation. And so after his fancy resume, he writes specifically in verses 6 and 9 on that passage that we had read earlier. He says regarding his travel and regarding his resources on his way to Jerusalem, In verse 6, that the king had granted him everything he had asked for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And then in verse 9, he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month for the gracious hand of his God was on him. And this theme that Ezra repeats over here in our passage, this highlighting theme that the hand of God is upon him, the favor of God, the blessings of God is evident in his life. And so the king grants him everything that he needs, right? He gives him silver, gives him gold. He gives him what he he needs for sacrifices. Also has provided food and wheat and olive oil, all the necessities, salt. And so, like I said, God's favor, his protection, his guidance, resources, his blessings are on Ezra's life. But this theme that he has about God's gracious hand, Ezra also highlights five other separate times in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. 
It is a very key point of reference that Ezra acknowledges the work of God in his life. Yes, his hand that provides resources and he cares for his needs and all that stuff, but he's highlighting God's gracious goodness in his life and in his ministry always. What a wonderful leader. He has great power. He has great knowledge and great experience in the people who have gone before him that he lists. He has this credibility to stand above all the others. And yet he continually acknowledges the gracious goodness of the Lord in his life. The blessings that he has, not because of his own ability, but because of what God has done in his life. He, he feels no need to abuse the power that he has. He's a self-effacing man who actually gives his power away to his community. So yes, he precedes his name with the genealogy before him to give him credibility. But as you see, after he explains who he is, he actually shares about others in verse 7, that there were other priests and singers and gatekeepers and temple servants. And he talks about the community, many of them volunteer community who came with him to bring about this second wave and this move of God and the reforming of his nation. And so he highlights the community. He values his community, validates them as well. What a wonderful leader. Acknowledges the gracious goodness of God, his blessings in his life, and all those that are in community around him. And so here's Ezra leading this reform, this changing of people's hearts individually, but collectively together as a community. And he magnifies it. He magnifies it by the crucial role that God's word and prayer is into the lives of those who submit to God. God's word, the Torah specifically in this setting, his law, God's truths in our lives, how it is God's word that sets the foundation for the reforming that takes place in the Israelite nation. And he highlights it in verse 10. And I'd like you to, if you feel so inclined to circle it in your Bible, highlight it or write it down in your journal. And verse 10 says, For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. And so Ezra himself, as a leader of this nation in this season at this time, more importantly, as a child of the Most High King, devotes himself. In the ESV, it actually says that he set his heart. I love that. I love that, that expression and how he writes that he had committed himself to doing this. This is, wasn't something that he was just going to try. It wasn't something that he wished would happen or hope is going to happen. But he has devoted himself. He is determined. He has set his heart on what he is going to do. There's a difference. Paul talks about it uh, in his book to Timothy. Uh, there's a difference in trying and training. He says physical training is of some value, but there's spiritual training is of eternal value. And this concept of not just trying to do something. No, you are setting an agenda. You are setting a time frame. You are setting goals. You are putting habits and implementing them into place that you are devoting, setting your heart, determining yourself, himself that he is going to study the word of God, to study it, to know it. I love it. He, he already claims that he's well-versed in it. In verse 6, 
but he continues to devote himself to study the Word of God in time and in research and work and effort, and not only to study it, not only to know it, but to observe it, to obey it, to live out according to the the promises, the truth, the laws, the desire the Lord has for his covenant people to live by. He is being obedient to the word of God in his life that it will affect him, how he, how he speaks, how he treats people, how he cares. And ultimately, to our last one in this section, into teaching. So he devotes himself to study, to observing it, and to teaching it to the community, to share with those around him. To see a, a reformation that has taken place personally in his own life, in his own heart, to now seeing it take place in the lives of the Israelite community. So Ezra devoted himself to study, to observe, to teach, and share. And, and this statement, it links God's gracious goodness, his hand of grace, his hand of protection on Ezra's life, and he links it together, implying that God's good hand rests upon those who set their heart to seek his law. And in chapter 8, verse 22, Ezra actually explains this. And he says, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Like anyone and everyone who looks to God sets their gaze upon him, determines, devotes, sets their heart to study his word, to know his word, to observe it, to share it, God's gracious hand is upon them. In this book, The Life God Blesses, Gordon MacDonald, he, he talks about, it's such a unique saying, this is the life that God blesses, because there really isn't anything that we can necessarily do to, to merit God's blessing. That if we do more of this or if we do less of this, then we're going to receive more blessings from God or less blessings from God. And that, that thinking, that concept doesn't, doesn't actually equate. That's not the gospel. That would mean that our actions play a huge part into God's grace into our lives. It plays a huge action potentially into salvation in our lives, which we know that salvation, we know that God's love is actually not dependent on us at all, but fully dependent on who he is, his love for us, and through the life of Jesus Christ. And so to, he's saying to write a book about how to get God's blessing is a funny concept because there really isn't necessarily a how-to, but it's a more of a how to submit to what the Lord desires in our lives. And so here we see this devotion, we see this study, we see this obeying, we see this teaching. And it's not necessarily a mathematical equation that if we do this, then God is going to bless us. That's not how it works. Actually, what's so unique about this is as Ezra commits to it, I believe the Spirit actually reveals to Ezra the blessings that God had already been doing in his life. The protection, the travel, the resources, God's hand, his gracious hand upon his life. And I believe as we, this semester, devote ourselves, like commit to it, set our heart to it, write down agendas and timelines and commit to this training, to studying, to obeying, and to sharing, I believe the Lord too in our lives will open our eyes, our spiritual eyes to see the blessings that he is already fulfilling in our lives every single day. Amen?
And so this semester, I believe the Lord wants to bring a reformation inside you personally. He desires to be with you personally. He desires to be with us collectively and to bring about a reformation where our culture is about devotion, is about studying, is about obeying, and is about sharing. And as we individually commit and collectively together commit to this form of reformation, I believe the Lord will reveal to us his blessings, his favor, his protection, his sovereignty, the hope that we have in his promises and his truth and in his word. And so it's not about a mathematical equation to force God's hand. I believe God's hand is already here and his desire is already here. He wants the things in which that are clouding our judgment and our spiritual view of what he's doing to be removed. And as we commit this semester to devote, to study, to obey, and to teach, that those things will be removed and we will see what the Lord is already doing here in this school. Things may seem not as what we expected, just like the Israelites who journeyed back to Jerusalem. Probably would have been devastating, eh? To see the destruction, to see what once was before and it just isn't anymore. Like, that's got to be discouraging. Like, our 2020 was in no means in exile, okay? I joke about it and we have some fun, but nothing in comparison. And the Spirit of God instilled hope into that community. That brought about a change. We'll read actually about it in Nehemiah 8 when we get there. You can read today if you want. It's Ezra basically soapbox preaching to the Israelites about the law, about God, about who he is and the prophets and the promises that are to come. And like people repent and, and their hearts are reformed and revival breaks out. And I'm a Pentecostal guy and so I like revival. I want revival, but I believe we need a reformation. And as we receive that reformation collectively in community, revival will then break out. Are you with me? Are you willing to commit this semester to devote, to set your heart, to study the word of God, to obey it, and to teach and to share it with those around you? Are you willing to? Okay, awesome. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this example that we see through Ezra. As a leader who has great credibility, a great place of prominence in the community, but we see the the closeness and the desire and the humility of himself making the decision of, of setting his heart to study, to know you, to be close with you, to be obedient to you and to share and to teach others about you. I thank you, Lord, for that example. I pray that we here would be encouraged, that we would be inspired uh, to do the same as leaders, to be inspired to commit the time to put in the work personally, knowing the necessity and the need that we have to make sure the weight below our waterline is, is heavy, is solid, that our foundation is secure, landing on your word as our foundation. Spirit, I pray this semester would be about the work of our inner being, about the soul care needed in today's day and age to be so close with you, to be so grounded in your word and near you that whatever happens in circumstances around us, whether on campus, in our world and social media, maybe it's families at home, 
the difficulties and situations of friendships that we may be experiencing, Lord, we can, we can weather any storm because we're rooted and grounded in you and your word. I pray that over this family here. I pray this over this chapel cohort. God, I pray that this cohort here, I pray this collectively for a whole school, that we would see a reformation take place, a longing and desire for your word to be our foundation every day. That we would live according to your word every day. We would share with people every day about your favor, about your goodness, about your blessings that are in our life. We pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Enjoy the sunshine today. I encourage you to read through Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther throughout this semester as we work through it. Bring your Bibles and journals every week, whether we have music or not. Bring them. God bless you. Have a great day.